So the president-elect, who once said the so-called dreamers brought here illegally as children, would all, quote, have to go. There will be no amnesty. You're listening to Trump 101, the podcast where we document how our new president is affecting universities in America. My name is Katie Ward. I'm a senior media studies major. My name is Gabriel Greshler. I'm a sophomore politics major. I'm Raquel Gonzalez, a senior media studies major. And my name is Ali DeFazio, senior politics major. We're four students who had a simple idea one day. Show the personal side of those affected by President Trump. For better or worse. Tune in for a new episode every Wednesday. But for now, here's this week's episode where we talk to Darwin Velasquez, an undocumented student at the University of San Francisco. I just want to touch on when you were in El Salvador yeah. and coming to America. What was that like? And like, why did your family decide to leave El Salvador and take this huge risk and move to the United mm. States? So the violence in El Salvador is, is terrible. Um, by that, it was already 2005. And by that time, um, gangs were starting to like uh, increase violence dramatically in, in cities. And... My family was, it wasn't poor, but it wasn't rich. We were, you know, okay. Um, because my dad was an independent contractor in El Salvador. But what really scared us was that like, then we started receiving threats of like paying money to the gangs. Um, <clears throat> like, so my, my mom at some point was like, I'm, I'm tired of this. So then she decided to move here uh, with my dad. And then two years later, they were like, all right, we're going to bring everyone to the U.S. And that's how, and as a kid, of course, I didn't have a choice. Salvadoran gangs have been present since the mid-1980s, when a network of cartels and drug traffickers began to spread across Central America. They've grown in size and complexity, and by 2005, they were a very serious threat to the people of El Salvador. Now, the country has a very high murder rate. According to the New York Times, El Salvador has 81 murders per 100,000 residents. By comparison, the United States has five per 100,000. Darwin's parents moved to the United States in 2005, leaving Darwin and his brother in the care of their grandmother in La Union, El Salvador. Two years later, Darwin traveled with his younger brother to join them. From birth, Darwin has struggled with severe cataracts, leaving him legally blind, which made the journey to America that much harder. I made a trip on buses, trains, and, and cars to the U.S., like across Guatemala and, and most of Mexico. What was that journey like? It was, there? yeah. Um, it's intense because you're sitting on, a, on buses for like 16 hours, 15 hours. As a kid, I didn't know, I didn't even know who the president was, like of Guatemala or Mexico at that time. So like, I had to learn uh, kind of like a brief Mexican history and, and the, who the president was or stuff like that. In case like immigration officials got on the bus and asked me like, oh, where are you from? And I would say, I'm from Mexico. Then I'll, they would ask us, uh, um, a very simple question about Mexico and then I should be able to answer it. So I had to learn and when I, while I was on the bus and, and but it was really tiring, physically exhausting. Yeah. Um, 
and it was scary too because uh the coyotes and, and you know that's a the, the the traffickers or like the people that help get us from point a to point b they get us a fake visa in mexico and then i had to fly um with a fake visa which i did uh wow. <laughs> you know wow. but so that was scary for me because i was like whoa uh, like i wasn't that scared of going on the bus like but i was more scared going through security at a Ameri at a mexican airport so i flew from from toluca to tijuana and that was my first time on a plane so um but after that uh everything you know turned negative so how did you get across the border did you go through a checkpoint or did you just like walk no I, I i tried to jump it um I, I we so like there were other people going with us and i got on other people's backs since i wasn't that heavy and then i just jumped it and so i twisted my ankle and what happened was that everyone got caught uh trying to cross and and at that time, you know, like, remember that I didn't know English at this age. So, like, um, uh, so they told me, like, put your hands up, don't move, pointing the guns at me. And who and, were these people? Uh, they were the Border Patrol. And, and the American? Officers. Yes, yeah. the American. American yeah, because they barely got me, like, into the American soil. And that's why I got to stay in the U.S. Um, ah. Because, uh, so, like, I was classified as an unaccompanied minor, which means I was, I was coming to the U.S., with my brother by myself with no adults taking care of me besides the coyotes but of course they run away like you know they, they we're not gonna stay there and get caught too wow so yeah. what was it like for um those weeks when you weren't with your parents or you're an unaccompanied minor so they have detention centers for kids which essentially look on the outside they look like uh, elementary schools uh but they're not uh, they are prisons for kids wow. um, and usually they have them in like border uh, states like Mexico I mean uh, New Mexico Arizona Texas so like but of course in the outside not a whole lot of people know about it because they they never been to a facility like that mm. um, they never been in you know across those walls so like you look you look at a building and you automatically assume like oh yeah that's a that, that looks like a school you know but it's not a school, it's, it's a prison for kids. It's a detention center. How so, many kids were in there when you were there? There were probably like 200 kids. It, it varies, like a lot of times, yeah. Did they offer school at that point or what, what were you doing throughout yeah, the day? Yeah, so they offered us to learn English. Uh, so we took some English courses to keep us busy. And, and of course, like we play sports in the afternoons and stuff like that. But we knew like that they were watching us and that just like, regular prisoners you know so wow. um <laughs> i was detained were you there with your brother the whole time i was there with my brother yes okay so yeah. you guys got to stick together well, yeah we got to thankfully yes my brother and i we uh we have different uh relationships but at that time like we were we were close um we we were a team we complimented each other out because the thing because you know like i if you told me like, oh, can you read this book? Like, I won't be able to read it because I need like to enlarge it, or like I need like a twenty-four point font or stuff like that. But my brother read to me. By that time, he already knew how to read. So like, he read to me, and I was the the mastermind. I, I was the one that could memorize fast. I was the one that like, I was like, all right, all right. Uh, this is where the coyotes told us where to go, and I was like, just make sure you read the signs correctly. So like, we we complimented each other out on our way here. And then we still do too. We still do too. 
So how did you end up uh, getting to see your parents again? How, uh, so yeah, like uh, my parents had to find an, uh, a US uh, born citizen. So like we, we had to, he, he's a really good cl close of, uh, friend of the family and he was able to sponsor us here. What was it like kind of just overall coming from El Salvador to the United States and um, kind of culture wise and, and coming to the US and it's such a formative age too where you're kind of coming into like yeah, being it, a person, yeah, you know? Yeah, so you're what, you're in your you know teenage years, yeah. starting your teenage years, yeah. And what so. was it like being a, a, also a, sc a school where, you know, as, as I don't know yeah. what the uh, the other students were like around you, yeah. like if they were American citizens or they were. Yeah, what was what was it like? Kind of. It was isolating. Yeah, uh, it was isolating because I didn't have any friends here. Most of my, I mean, all my childhood friends stayed in El Salvador, and I was by myself here with my brother. And uh, it, it was tough, especially seventh grade and eighth grade, like. Uh, you know, but at the same time, I was at that point that you you start talking to girls, you know, so like I, I it kind of motivated me to like uh, learn English as much as, as fast as I could so I can talk to him. So you can girls. <laughs> so like at least something. It's a right? good way so, to do it. Yeah. yeah. Uh, they say like if you want to date someone and to learn a language, like just date someone from that specific language or culture, you know. So. Uh -huh. um, but you know, I was those years that I I was I was learning fast, but I also I was also motivated to talk to the girls. Yeah, so <laughs> I was just like, all right, you, you seem cute in middle school, you know. On the deferred action program that we have, known as DACA, that relates to Dreamers who are currently benefiting from uh, these provisions, uh, I will urge. Uh, the president-elect and the incoming administration uh, to uh, think long and hard before they are um, endangering the status of what, uh, for all practical purposes, are American kids. So how did you first hear about DACA? So I first heard about DACA um, through, like, as soon as the president uh, announced the, the executive order. DACA, or the Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals, is a policy that was implemented under the Obama administration in 2012. This program is extended to children who entered the U.S. before the 16th birthday and before June 2011. To qualify for DACA, children must be enrolled in school or have obtained a high school diploma. DACA recipients also cannot have committed a felony, a serious misdemeanor, or three minor misdemeanors. Uh, I was given the chance to stay in the U.S. and, and said, like, okay, you have court hearings and, and all that good stuff. And then I, I got to go like the first two times, but the second time, uh, and I remember this because like it was super important. So as a kid, I, you know, I used to pay attention to that. Mm -hmm. So he was like, um, if you don't bring a lawyer next time, uh, we will deport you. And at that time, my parents were so broke that they couldn't afford to pay a lawyer here. Because lawyers are expensive here, you know? So yeah. <laughs> I, I decided not to go. I told my parents, I'm not going to go to the, the, the... And by this age, I was already like 13. So I was like, because, you know, it takes a little 
a few months for you to get from one core here into the next one, you know. So I didn't go, and then they automatically placed me in deportation proceedings. But because I came here to be a good person, to you know, not to cause any harm, and just specifically to study and and to have access to healthcare and and contribute to society as much as I can and be reunited with my family, um, I I didn't have any issues, even though I had a deportation proceedings until 2012. So that's how I found out too that like as soon as DACA came uh, came out. I was like, okay, I better talk to my attorney, so let's see if I can qualify for it. And then I gave her uh, my A number, so they call it the alien number, which I disagree with the name, but that's a whole other topic. Mm-hmm. But uh, So I gave her, her my lawyer my, my A number, and she was able to pull my files on immigration, and she was like, did you know that you have a, a deportation proceedings, a deportation order mm-hmm. on, on your name? And I'm like, what? She was like, yes. So I thought, like, all right, let's fix that. So I got able, I was able to fix it um, because um, I had to apply and, and had to show like that I had been a good student. So like my high school teachers, uh, former colleagues, like the internships that I did in high school or volunteering work that I did, they all like wrote letters for me and they were so nice. And, uh, and thanks to that uh, and to all those people that wrote. Uh, me letters, um, I was able to stay in the country wow. and I was able to apply for DACA. By this time, I was already a senior in high school okay. and I was already proactive of like, okay, new legislation of, regarding immigration and um, and just remember that an executive action, it's only valid or uh, legal during that president's mm. uh, tenure. Mm-hmm. So I and, and then the next president decides to whether to keep it or not, but he has to sign on it. Uh, And that's the big issue that's going on uh, currently in the United States. Listeners should be aware that DACA does not provide a path to citizenship for its recipients. This means that if the Trump administration repeals DACA, Darwin's only hope for a life in the U.S. is protection at the University of San Francisco, which has been deemed a sanctuary campus. Father Fitzgerald, the president of USF, was interviewed on CNN days after the election about his school's sanctuary campus. He said that the 250 sanctuary campuses in the country pledged to provide every legal means to protect their students. It is important to understand that the term sanctuary campus has no formal legal definition. However, Father Fitz has a greater advantage than other sanctuary universities because his school is located in the sanctuary city of San Francisco. This means that local law enforcement will not provide the information of undocumented immigrants to federal immigration officers. For those here illegally today who are seeking legal status, they will have one route and one route only, to return home and apply for re-entry like everybody else we will break. President Trump has recently authorized orders that would immediately detain and deport any illegal immigrant ICE encounters, except DACA recipients. Although Trump hasn't called for their deportation yet, he faces pressure from within his own party and constituency. Um, what, what will happen to you if DACA gets repealed? Yeah, so right now, it's funny because uh, my DACA expires in April. And... I expires? Received, I don't yeah. know. How does that work? Like Yeah, so like you um so DACA you have to renew it every two years. 
Okay. So I got to renew it like one time during the Obama administration, mm. and now uh, it expires in in April. So I apply for renewal, and they send me a letter of intent, which is not um, uh, it's not official yet, but they, it's letter of intent trying to deny my DACA. So I'm I'm appealing that uh, with my attorney. So the it's on security. It's it's a sense that like you don't know what's gonna happen because like okay during the Obama administration we I knew that like all right if I apply I'm 100% I'm gonna get it because I have met all the requirements. Mm -hmm. But now it's like you know I'm scared and I and I'm getting my degree in December and I won't be able to work. Let's say if my DACA is denied right in April. So what am I gonna do? You know, like I'm so I'm, I'm already starting to make plans mm. of in that scenario. What what am I gonna do? What because I would love to continue with my education, or I would like to work after college. But at the same time, it's like how would I work if my DACA gets taken away? Like, you know, I go back to when I was in high school because like I couldn't work. I couldn't. I could. I didn't have any um, uh, social security number, an ID, or anything like that. So. All of that will be taken away, including my bank account and all that. So, you know, it, it's, it, it's a difficult time and it just makes you insecure as a human being. Like, like maybe those are things that, you know, someone that was born here, they don't, they take for granted. Mm. But like renewing your documents every two years is really exhausting. Yeah. Like one is like the waiting process. You have to be on it. Like, because it's uh, 90 days before you know it's due and you're not and you're the whole time you're wondering like am i gonna get it am i gonna get it like am i gonna be legal or not like and and also financially like it, as a college student i'm broke like i admit it you know like i mean most college students are right unless you're you're working uh, a lot of hours you know but it's 300 and no 465 dollars just to renew your daca so you can pay the 465 dollars and potentially not get in yeah well, that's a horrible part. It's like if I get denied my DACA and my DACA gets taken away, like I don't get my my money order back. Like that's money that, that it it goes to US the USCIS. So it's you know, like yeah. it's not a government handout. That's what I want to say. It's like mm -hmm. it, the government is receiving a lot of money off of it. That's yeah. interesting. So and another thing that people say about DACA is that everyone who has like you've declared yourself as undocumented to the government. You said I'm undocumented, and I but yeah. I want to change that. Yeah. And now there's like a list with your name on it. Yeah. That. And they have all my information. Yeah. So phone like, number, what, email, what, address. Like, yeah. What, what do you think about that? Like, do you think that that's realistically going to be used in a like a terrible worst case scenario? I way? think so. Yeah. Why not? I mean, like, I expect the worst now. Now that we are. How many weeks? Two or three weeks into the uh, Trump presidency. Yeah. So like, I don't. I'm not. I'm not just like scared in terms of like, oh yeah, I won't be able to work. But I'm scared of getting deported at some point um, without me causing any harm in the United States or like, you know, just because like I'm here in another country. Like, yes, this is not my country of birth, but this is the country that that I love and that the country that I have contributed in the country that has educated me. Mm. Like, come on, I don't want to go back, but if I have to, then I will. And you say United States, you consider your country. Um, like, why, why did you 
Why do you think your family decided to come to the United States and not Mexico or Canada or the Great Britain? Why America? Why America? I think that, like, there's this premise here that, like, if you work hard, if you're a good person, a good citizen, like, um, everything will be fine. Like, you're not going to have the richest life, but at least you have the promise of, like, having a peaceful life with, you know, a safe uh, environment, a safe community, a good education. And you have, like, access, access yeah. to education, access, some type of access to healthcare, access to, you know, like, uh, your a car. And here, at least, like, you get to have your high school diploma. And over there, it's like, you're lucky if you if you graduate middle school. You're lucky if you graduate high school. And you're more lucky if you gra if, if you get to go to college in El Salvador. Pro if I were to be in El Salvador, most likely I would be a father. Um, I most likely wouldn't be in school. I, I'm hundred percent sure of that. Like even if I wanted to go to school, there were there were not resources that would help me to go to school. Although Darwin fears that he will need to move back to El Salvador. He hopes that the Trump administration will allow him to renew his DACA status. Darwin is one of many young adults living in the U.S. under this policy, many of whom are students who came to the United States to escape violence, find opportunity, and better their futures. I'm curious about what it was like to live with a Trump supporter during the 2016 yeah. election. Yeah. Yeah. Can, you, can you talk about that? I, I used to live with him. It, oh, it, it, was, it, it got pretty tough at the first, uh, when I, because I, and he's my best friend. And I and I see his point too. I'm like, I learned, and I think he makes us, uh, the two of us a lot better. Because mm -hmm. like, before I couldn't stand at talking to Trump supporters or anyone who, who had an opposing point of view. And the argument he will always tell me, you got, we are such a liberal university, dude. And I'm like, well, you have to learn how to listen to uh, liberals and I will learn how to, how to listen to mm. you or conservative, but you know, but like, and that's how it is. I think it makes us better as, mm. as people. And, and that's what, it doesn't matter. He's still not my enemy because he, he supports Trump. Uh, you know, it's kind of cool. How have you come to terms with being okay with talking to the other side? Because yeah. I think most students and, and just in your case, too, yeah. I could see you or if I was in your case, I'd yeah. be kind of angry. Like yeah. these Cause your life. Yeah. Yeah. Cause yeah. yeah. I, I, I honestly I get angry. And, and here's my little conservative side. I get angry at the people that say, um, oh, my God, the system doesn't work for me and just complain. I'm like, get your butt to work and let's <laughs> let's let's work together and figure this thing out. Don't no, you don't just sit around and complain. Because like if, if you are always complaining, it's like you're not gonna fix it. Mm. You will fix it by understanding people who oppose your argument. Like lawyers, for example. Like in law, you just don't present your side. You also study the other side. I love to be an objective scholar and I love the facts from both sides. And and then I make a decision whether this is, you know, what what's gonna be my opinion. So I base my opinion based on that. Like and I think that it, it's uh, it, it takes practice. Um, like for example, like I had a friend in, here at USF, and she was complaining because she was in this class here, and the professor told her like, "Oh, you cannot apply. I mean, you cannot oppose you, you know your peers' point of view because like, you know, they, it, will, it will make them uncomfortable. It's supposed to make you uncomfortable. Like when you learn to listen to the other side and, and you learn to read." 
um, what other others are saying from a conservative point of view, you have more factual evidence to base your opinion on. And, and I feel like that, it, that just makes you a better student, a better person, mm. and a better friend too. Thanks for listening to the premiere episode of Trump 101, the podcast where we tell the stories of university community members affected by the Trump administration. You can see more of our work at Trump101podcast.com and follow us at Trump101podcast on Twitter and Facebook. Special thanks to Darwin Velasquez for sharing his story. Thank you to the University of San Francisco Media Lab for providing the studio and equipment. And a big thanks to Ten Den for graphic design, Musafa Chuck for videography, and Maloney for our intro song. You can see more of their work at our super cool website, Trump101podcast.com. News clips are provided by Fox News and CNN. And thank you to our listeners. Join us next week where we interview an American student who was raised in Syria and whose family is still there. 